This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Yeah, we're going. Hey, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Uh, I am here uh, with Pastor Kenneth Weeding, and we are going to be discussing Holy Communion. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching the Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program today. I'm excited to discuss communion uh, with my new friend here on uh, the YouTube. So if you're enjoying the content that we're producing, I want to remind you we're entirely crowdfunded. There are links in the description. You can give on those top two links. You got a PayPal link. If you want to give a one-time gift or contribution to Remnant Radio, PayPal is the way to go. Uh, Or if you want to be a recurring giver, you want to say, hey, I want to give as low as five bucks a month. You give access to extra content there on Patreon. Some of the behind the scenes stuff that we do, testimonies from conferences, some of the weird artwork I've got in the background, uh, busts of uh, great reformers in the past, like uh, John Calvin, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther. We'll get into a little bit of that today. It's going to be an exciting program talking about the table. Uh, but before I do that, I want to introduce you to my co-host, partner in crime. That is Michael Roundtree on the left. Uh, and and I feel like I want to I want to I want to reverend you. But you said pastor. You go by pastor there. Uh, do, do you? I'm curious, and I sh- I should know all this, and have had asked you all this before our program. Are you a Missouri Synod Lutheran? That's correct. Fantastic. I, I'm, I'm a closet yeah, Lutheran. I haven't, I haven't, pro- I haven't professed my Lutheran-ness of yet, uh, but, <laughs> but I love a lot of Lutheran theology. I love the smaller catechism, the Book of Concord. Uh, I've done, done a, a lot of good work Luther. in that. I, I do have a crush on Martin Luther, and one day, one day, uh, I, I will grow up to be half the theologian, uh, if, if the Lord willing. Yeah, uh, without further ado... Not, Probably not, though. Hey, but speaking uh, of half, half the theologian of Martin Luther, Michael Roundtree preached a fantastic sermon on Sunday that you guys need to go check out uh, Bridgeway's YouTube page. Seriously, though, Tom Ball, one of his elders, came and told me about it, and he was like, dude, check out the sermon. It's fantastic. So you need to go go check it out. It's uh, from Acts, Stephen's sermon in Acts. Really, really good. Uh, anyway, I toss it over to you. Cool. It's a compliment. It'll make you feel uncomfortable. What do you do now, Michael? Uh <laughs> Not much. Uh, anyway, well, I'm excited to talk a little bit about communion. Now, it's it's interesting, and uh, and Kenneth, it's uh, so my church is just beginning to do weekly communion starting in a week, and you know how booking this episode was. We, I read your book a while back, and you know we booked we booked you, and then it had to change the. Uh, the timing of it, and you and you picked the date, and it's kind of convenient for my church because you're doing this episode on weekly communion, and we're starting weekly communion this week. But uh, it was providentially that way, and so uh, yeah. But I I really loved I loved your deep dive into church history. That was uh, really helpful for me in understanding 
uh, communion. But uh, I, I don't want to get too deep into to that segment of it. Kenneth, I, I know you're, so you're a Lutheran pastor, uh, which will tell us a little bit about your understanding of communion. And you're part of the Missouri Synod, which will mean something to some of our viewers and not much to some of our viewers, but uh, you're part of the Missouri Synod. And uh, is there anything else you'd like for us to just know about yourself biographically? Just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself or maybe some of the ways that people can connect with you. Well, um, based upon Joshua's uh, recent statements there, I'm going to, um, I'm going to uh, encourage him to go on the website and of uh, Amazon.com. Prime, and this was my book, uh, and with my, he mentioned the artwork, this is my wife's artwork, and it became available just about three or four days ago, and it is a one year of collected sermons that I preached, but those sermons would uh, be grounded in and flow from the book, Michael, that you have read and that we're going to speak a little bit about today. Um, it, that's where um, it all comes together, uh, is where Christ gathers us together. And uh, he does that in, in the scriptures on the Lord's Day. Um, if uh, Good Friday is the center of human history, and it is God dying for the sins of the world, God the Son, what occurred on Monday, Thursday in the upper room, boy, in terms of an ultimate speaking of a gift, uh, right before he steps out into the night to be uh, uh, tempted by Satan in the, in the garden to, uh, to uh, agonize there in bloody sweat because he knew it was coming for us in love for us in steadfast, uh, compassionate love for us. He knew it was coming, but take and eat. This is my body. And uh, it would have been jarring, as I said, uh, it, to, to speak to his disciples. Um, it's Passover. There's lamb, but no, there's bread. And taking the bread, take and eat. This is my body given for you. <laughs> More jarring take and drink this cup is the new testament in my blood from matthew and mark this is my blood of the covenant take and drink it i mean they were not to drink blood they were not to they were to drain the blood out of animals before they ate them so jesus takes over the passover and uh, he he is um, he is the new passover and here in, in this gift he uh, he gives to his disciples a gift of love a gift of forgiveness. St. Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians so clearly. And um, after Jesus rose on Easter Sunday, think of the Emmaus disciples uh, in Luke 24. Uh, seven-mile sermon. My congregations never let me preach seven-mile sermons to them, but uh, Jesus <laughs> did. And when he, he arrives then at their, at their uh, destination, um, and along the way, their hearts are burning because he's opened the Old Testament to them. And he says, uh, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And it comes down to this, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. That's the church's business. That's pastor's business, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, uh, behold, the, the, uh, the, the promise of my father I'll send upon you. But, but wait, wait in, in the city until that occurs. And so then we go to, hold, uh, to uh, well, perhaps a bit more on in, in Emmaus. Well, what do the disciples do? 
they recognize him in all of that preaching? No. Not until the breaking of the bread. Then their eyes are open. Their hearts are burning before that, but their eyes are open to the presence of the living Christ for the first time in the flesh through the breaking of the bread. And then we read that he was no longer visible to them. The text doesn't say he disappeared or that he he, he left, left them, but that he uh, ceased to be visible to them. There is here a tremendous, uh, if you were, framework for the ongoing worship of God's people because Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in their midst. Um, I will not leave you or forsake you. Um, and so he, he gathers his people and in worship, and he comes in the same way he came to the Emmaus disciples, speaking to us of himself from all the scriptures. Uh, in our confession, we have... Um, we have appointed texts. Uh, the, the little book I held up here of collected sermons. Um, it, it's uh, the text that um, Martin Luther preached on, <laughs> preached on for centuries in the church. It was called a one-year series, and I never did it till late in my that that particular um, in, late in my my time as a pastor. But the the scriptures that are there, Old Testament epistle, uh, the Gospels, Christ Himself speaking. Uh, Jesus is speaking to us to them, and faith comes to the speaking of Christ, the word of Christ, but also the speaking of Christ to us, who's with us, gathered in his name. And um, then there's a recognition of him for the Emmaus disciples and the breaking of the bread, and there's a serving of Christ to us in the most intimate, uh, loving, personal way in the sacrament of his body and blood. This is not, um, uh, Martin Luther would say, the sermon is for everyone. And some hear it and some don't and so forth. But in terms of the Lord's Supper, take and eat. This is uh, my body. This, body, this uh, is my body which is given for you. And that's singular. So, but so many of the yous in the Bible that get us mixed up are really plural in the Greek, but that's singular. Drink of it, all of you. This cup is a New Testament of my blood, shed for the remission of your sins. Um, so this gift, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, given at Pentecost, who is to bring Jesus to us, is to um, uh, testify to Jesus, bear witness to Jesus, bring to um, our life all that Jesus has done. He, in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and to the prayers. Uh, that which formed and fed their fellowship was the apostles' doctrine and the Lord's Supper, what Jesus bestows in that, uh, that uh, wonderful gift. And then we see in, in the uh, other scriptures there too, and other places in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, I mean, when Paul is scolding the Corinthians, they're all factionalized. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow uh, Christ. Um, uh, who, who is it that uh, they are to follow is Christ. And so Paul scolds them on their factionalism in terms of the Lord's Supper. They didn't wait for one another. Um, I suppose in the setting there in Corinth, it would have been about, what, 50 people in a small house church, the one that we have in Dura Europa in the in the third century is about that that uh, that big and there's usually a little 
inter, inter uh, interior room, 10 or 12 can get in there. And then in the courtyard of the atrium, maybe another uh, 40 people. And uh, I think a similar thing is at work in, in James' epistle when he scolds them for um, showing partiality to those who are wearing the fine clothes and wearing the gold ring. You come and sit over here. So, you know, in Corinth, it's a mess. It's a mess regarding the Lord's Supper. And it, there's there's a indication that there's a love feast that goes with it, that they're, that they're eating and they're getting drunk and so forth. But... Um, this 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 communion, this gift of the Lord that's to bring unity, or that is is a is a gift of a, uniting us with Christ and therefore with one another. That is um, that is being uh, uh, misused in in, a, in major ways. And Paul doesn't say, "Okay, stop it. Let's make it less frequent." He works right away to correct the 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 misuse of it. He puts them in their in their place and. Uh, don't you know? And he speaks about, you, you mentioned uh, in terms of worthiness to commune. Paul speaks of it there. And in 1 Corinthians 11, surely there's a connection between um, those verses that's, that speak about um, discerning the body of Christ. And then uh, if you, uh, whoever eats this bread is partaking of the uh, body of Christ and this cup, the blood of Christ. So the, the body there is at the church and uh, Christ's body as the as the body of believers that's mentioned. Well, I think the big context in Corinthians would say, yeah, you, you, there there's an issue here with that, and Paul is addressing it. But the the immediate context in those verses of First Corinthians eleven, um, it would be it would be almost impossible to not say that not discerning the body here in the bread, not discerning the blood here in the cup, in this new covenant that he's given is, is, is not present. Uh, there's a, there's a, a flowing of that argument that just connects those in a, I believe, an unmistakable way. So we believe that this Kenneth, it sounds like hey, you Kenneth, moved. You might've bumped your computer or placed your hand on top of the microphone of your computer. We couldn't hear you there once you moved your computer there. Okay. I don't That's know better. what I'm You can hear me now? Yes, sir. Okay. It is a true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine uh, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. When you, um, boy, I, in terms of the questions you asked, Michael, they're all flowing, flowing together for me. But in the early church then, um, this was central to worship. And for the first centuries there's no indication uh, well for the first 15 centuries there's no indication of a of a worshiping community without the presence of the sacrament um, and of course there were in the middle ages and from uh, boy the sixth century on abuses misunderstandings of the lord's supper uh, what rome uh, did with uh, some of the um, teachings uh, superstitious teachings about indulgences and about uh, votive massives and so forth. But in terms of what Christ gave, what the Holy Spirit um, um, brought to the early church, bringing Christ to them in word and sacrament, uh, that's continuing and it's seen in church history um, until um, Constantine, 
even in the persecutions, uh, the, 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 the Christians continued. Sometimes they had to do it in catacombs, sometimes always, in, usually always in these small house churches. Um, but they continue receiving uh, Jesus' presence in his word and sacrament on the Lord's day. Uh, when, with Constantine and then with the um, legalization of Christianity, um, it's, it, there is now for Christianity something that's uh, popular that's politically advantageous, that's monetarily uh, advantageous, and uh, there's a decline in communion that is seen there in terms of my studies. And my studies are limited. I'm not the, uh, the final expert in these areas. In my book, uh, Michael, I simply shared things that uh, I was able to determine. In answering a question for a member I served about why they couldn't have the Lord's Supper each Sunday. And in the book, I say I thought it was a silly question because it was not part of my tradition. I hadn't really even thought about it as a pastor and that to my shame. But uh, everything I studied to try to explain to him why in our Missouri Synod congregations, we had it every other week. Uh, there's no, no scriptural, no confessional, no historical reason why the people should be denied this gift of Christ when they gather together. Hmm. Um, Going on, then. Um, can I can I ask I, a question here? Jump right in. Yeah. Uh, so, so Kenneth, I'm 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 interested. We've got this period of time where, I mean, as you've just illustrated for us, that that Christ gives uh, the table um, before his death, before his 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 resurrection. He after his resurrection shares the table with. Um, those on the road to Emmaus. Then he uh, later uh, sees this table kind of institutionalized in the book of Acts. Uh, you know, they're breaking bread, uh, devoting themselves to the, the apostles' doctrine, to breaking of, of bread, to prayer, supplication, those kinds of things. You see in the church of Corinth, it seems like as they're gathering together on the Lord's Day, they're practicing this this holy communion, this Eucharist, this this Thanksgiving, the celebration of what Christ has done for us. Um, and all the while, as they're they're doing this, uh, this carries along into church history. We see this in church history. Um, but then something happens. You know, I, I remember reading Luther's biography, and there's like some, well, you know, there's a trillion Luther biographies. But um, you know, there there are Catholics who are priests, basically, are the only ones who can take communion by the day of Luther. You know, and even then, you have to be like extra holy with the side of righteous, and you only get to take it once a month. You know, communion has been this thing that, you know, if, if, if an ounce of it is spilled and is given to a congregant, then the priest would have to lick it off the floor. So then they started just giving bread to people. Then it kind of works its way up. So, like, what happened? Can you just walk us through some early history stuff and, and kind of walk us through the trajectory of uh, of communion? And then I guess this is kind of also a humble brag. As, 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 as we're talking about artwork here, I want to I show you this. This is actually the only tattoo I have. I, I designed this. Um, in, in, in respect of Luther, uh, that this is my body and the work of the spirit in the table. So, uh, mad love for good Christian artwork and for good Christian artwork that, uh, is, that is all communion related. Artwork. Yeah. I like it as, as far as good Christian artwork goes. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. Walk us through some of the, the history of early church theology, uh, uh when it comes to the practice of communion. From what I can uh, gather and have uh, conveyed in my book, uh, Gregory the Great, um, boy, 6th century, late 500s, uh, a pope, 
and uh, mission-minded. And he, he, he did some good things in terms of uh, the church with its music and uh, his pastoral teaching how uh, what priests should be doing, but also some real superstitious stuff. And um, one of his missional emphasis was to put priests in monasteries. I mean, monks are there and uh, they did a lot to preserve writings and and, and education and through the through the ages that some call dark ages through the mid medieval ages but Gregory wanted mission work to be done and so he put priests in these monasteries and of course the priests were put in an office to part of what they were to do was to um, give the Lord's Supper and in uh, Roman parlance to celebrate the mass so you'd have all these priests in the monastery and they would celebrate the mass privately. And uh, it's kind of where it really, I, if you will, took off on steroids there. And then it worked its way out into the parishes. And soon, like in Luther's time, time um, in, in, in Wittenberg, the churches would have a main altar and they'd have a dozen side altars. And you could have these priests um, all of them who were, most of them were paid by people to say a mass for something, for a better harvest, for finding a wife, for a business trip, um, uh, whatever it might be, for uh, health. Relief in purgatory for a dead relative. Yeah, that, that, that became a huge thing in terms of uh, after Gregory the Great. And our Lutheran confessions really, uh, you know, they, they identify that in him that so much uh, came into the church's practice through him that was harmful. So um, you think of it, here's the living Christ, the, the, the Christ first stepping forward into the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing he's going to face God's holy wrath, not only our physical death, but our the punishment, the judgment, the damnation we deserve. He takes it all. And he does it in a sense for um, not in a sense he does it uh in love for us and he does it in the context of giving this gift my body my blood for you it's the new covenant the new testament the last will and testament luther got onto this as a last will and testament in part from hebrews where it says that uh, um, one must the testator must die in order to uh, hand over the the inheritance that's to be given and so this is i mean this is last the la one of the last things jesus did uh if not the last before walking out into uh the night singing a hymn on his way to to gethsemane and so um this is not to be trifled with you, you wouldn't mess with anyone's last will until you don't change the words so your little tattoo there joshua yes this is my body and Luther, um, uh, he, he, he refused to philosophize about it. He just said, we will stick with the words that came from the lips of Christ. That's where we will find um, this gift and the meaning of this gift and the substance of this gift. This is my body. Uh, so when you say the last will and testament, yes, you mentioned Hebrews. Um, and so the person has to die before the inheritance comes through the will. Uh, this idea, yeah. yeah, 
so some people are, that's going to be a new concept for them in relating that to communion. So how would you make maybe a exegetical argument for communion is intended to be a last will and testament from Jesus? And, and maybe kind of part of that, like what practically does that mean? Does that mean we are receiving the inheritance of Christ's redemption in the act of partaking of communion? Because if I think about a will and receiving an inheritance, it would seem the same. Like, okay, so so in partaking of communion, I'm in this moment receiving my inheritance in Christ. And I can hear the objector saying, but, but we already had our inheritance in Christ. We had forgiveness of sins already. Uh, we had, uh, you know, everything Christ purchased for us. So so uh, there's kind of multiple questions. One, how would you defend the last will and testament biblically that this is what's happening in communion? And then two, if that's true, what does this mean for us? Are we literally receiving an inheritance in communion? Luther's way of describing it is that we receive all the treasures of heaven. Uh, there's a chapter in my book, chapter eight on the, the abounding treasures that come in, in the gift of the Lord's Supper. But uh, you, you mentioned the forgiveness of sins. And well, aren't we forgiven? You know, for, uh, Luther's first thesis of 95, when our Lord and Master said, repent, he meant the entire life of the Christian is to be one of repentance, of turning, turning away from that old sinful nature inside of us. Oh, the sins, yeah, they bubble up. The big bugger is the sinful nature on the inside, the old Adam. And so we turn from that. Uh, uh, Luther would say in terms of baptism, <laughs> the indication, what does it signify? That the old Adam in us should by daily repentance um, be drowned and die with all sins and evil lusts. And the new man arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. <clears throat> so forgiveness is... It's not something that, okay, yeah, I got enough of it, thanks. I'm good for this week, okay? It's an ongoing relationship between God and us, uh, grace upon grace from the God of grace. But uh, do we, we, we strongly believe in baptism. God forgives our sins, Acts 2. Uh, be baptized uh, for the forgiveness of your sin, into ace, into the forgiveness of sins. Um, uh, no other texts on baptism, but we would see there this wondrous claiming of God uh, of us sinners, of giving us new life. And um, he'll never, ever back away from that gift and that promise. Mm -hmm. uh, we're so foolish. We could, we can, like the prodigal son, we hey, I'm out of here. I'm going to go live it up. I don't need your house. I don't need your gifts. You know, we, we can turn away from the gift. But, uh, you know, the prodigal son coming back then, um, he came back and he remembered his father's house. And uh, so a Christian uh, baptized, will God ever back away from that grace, that, uh, that uh, promised gift that he gave? Never, ever. But, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so if, if, let's just say then that person repents like the prodigal son comes home. The picture of the father is a wonderful picture of how our heavenly father views us. He desires none to be lost. 
And so like that father running up, kicking up dust on the country road uh, to meet his son. And then, you know, someone might come back and say, well, boy, I just, I wasted years of my life and I, I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be your, that's, you know, we, we like to be in control, even in repentance. We like to come back with change in our pocket. And God, the father just sweeps all that nonsense away and he puts the robe on him and he puts the ring in his finger and they're celebrating in the feast. And that's the grace of God and in, in that gift of baptism and in the gift of the sacrament of the altar. Um, here, Christ comes to us most intimately in the flesh. Here's my body given for you. My blood of the covenant shed for you for the remission of sins. Drink it. Mm. Um, it, it, is, okay. it is a gift that um, it's a gift for sinners who keep on sinning. Our God keeps on forgiving. And uh, so then do we. Okay. So, if we miss, go ahead. Right. So of the two questions with you answered the second one. Uh, does this mean that we practically are receiving the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection? Like we're receiving our inheritance in the act of communion and you used forgiveness as an example. So like, yes, we are forgiven at the moment we, uh, we come to Christ, but we need forgiveness renewed day by day. And in taking communion, we sort of re-receive that forgiveness. And so, uh, I take it that you would you would understand it since since it's all of Christ's benefits. The same could be said of um, maybe Christ's power, Christ's strength, Christ's healing, Christ's uh, sanctifying power. Um, all of the things that Christ purchased. When we participate in communion, those things are being received and renewed afresh. Is our inheritance in Christ? Is that? Uh, I think that's, so if you could confirm that I understood you right. And then question two, or the other question was, um, how does the, uh, how would you arrive at it from the text that, uh, that Christ's, uh, institution of the Lord's supper was intended to be, as Luther said, a last will and Testament where he bequeaths his inheritance to us through the supper. Okay. So for starters, would you confirm, did I articulate what you said rightly? that all the treasures that Christ won for us are given. How could he not give us uh, the lesser when he gives us the greater? So here is the blood of God that was uh, shed on the cross. Um, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My his blood cleanses us from all sins. Uh, we have peace through the blood of his cross. So if he serves us this blood, um, which is the great gift, Christ right there himself giving us his blood. What is there that he doesn't give us with that blood? Uh, right. All the treasure that Christ won for us coming. So you call, if you call that inheritance and um, last will and testament, I know that um, there's many who would just say, no, this is a covenant that we have. And, you know, I, I think uh, if you understand covenant, as a covenant like a king would give to uh, um, a vassal. Okay, this is this is what is in place here. This is what I'm giving to you. Um, uh, then yes, and so this do in remembrance of me. You you, you spoke that um, Michael as well. Um, this do in remembrance of me. 
And that remembrance is so crucial. In fact, it's one of the parts of my study that changed my approach at the altar. Uh, We we changed our altar at the church I served in for the last quarter of a century to make it freestanding. And um, so that I could go behind it, it was up against the wall. And Luther said, institution should be said or sung facing the congregation uh, because their gospel, their pure gospel. Uh, Take eat, this is my body, my blood. He said, face the people. And um, uh, where was I going with that? I'm 72, so uh, it's like, oh, the the remembrance. I remember, it was the remembrance. Okay, this do in remembrance of me. This is not making it something we do now for God. Um, And and in my book, the first um, biblical text I used there was the thief on the cross. And here's a man dying in naked shame, uh, saying, I'm getting what I deserve. Oh, oh, boy, that's quite a statement. That's a recognition of sin and and the confession that's that's not piecemeal. Um, and, And so there he is, and he has no plan to improve his life. He, he doesn't have a, any thought about turning things around, uh, growing in sanctification, anything. But through the words and actions of this one next to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, he, he, the thief wasn't asking just to be thought about. You know, the way we think of remembrance, it's remembering something in the past, someone who's not there. But remember me when you come into your kingdom. (laughs) Jesus, from the cross, in his naked shame and the throes of death, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that's remembering with a capital R. And and so even this remembering that we're doing, uh, in the Lord's Supper. It's, it's remembering that's related to that and the other uses of, of remembrance in the Old and New Testament. It's when God remembers, he acts. He, God remembered Noah. Oh, yeah, I forgot Noah. No, that's, you know, God is, is remembering Noah and, and acting for him and so forth in, in, uh, in, in his, his, uh, his providential care, his saving care for us. And so... Um, uh, in terms of the Lord's Supper, this do in remembrance of me, our doing is receiving. And doing it in remembrance is doing it in faith that Jesus, the living Christ, is there doing exactly what he promised to do for us, giving us these gifts. And when that recognition came uh, more fully for me in the studies I did, um, it, it causes me to pause and and bow my head. Some uh, pastors in our in our uh, confession, they will kneel at the words there because there is this belief in tr- that Christ Himself in the flesh, though not visible, like it like at Emmaus, when they recognized Him in the breaking of the bread, was that the Lord's Supper? The I don't I don't know that yeah. speak about. I don't know what occurred there, but that's when they recognized Him. Right, and then. And then he was no longer visible to them. Well, he's not visible to us, but then faith does not live by the eye. Faith lives by the ear. And, mm-hmm. and so here um, in, in, in the sacrament, uh, when I speak the words of institution, 
this do in remembrance of me, I would pause and bow my head just to slow myself down a bit and recall to myself that he's here. The risen Christ yeah. is here. And I receive now, I want to receive now what he's here to do in faith. That's the remembrance that he's asking us for. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote. And Josh, I know I jumped in with a few in a row here, so I'm, I'm about to volley it over to you, but I just want to read this quote. Um, this is from your book. You say, Luther interpreted this do in remembrance of me in accordance with Paul's words, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because the two are so close together in 1 Corinthians 11. Luther understood remembrance not as a mental act, but as a sermon that testified of God's uh, redemptive work, not man's work. For Luther, it was as if Christ had said, as often as you do this sacrament, you shall preach of me. And so just that in the act of remembrance, that it's, uh, as communion was called throughout church history, a visible sermon uh, that communion itself preaches. So do this in remembrance of me, the very act of communion is itself proclaiming the Lord's death until it, until he comes. So, so remembrance, when we do it by faith, like what you, uh, like what you said, Kenneth, that, that it proclaims the Lord's death anyway. So that's just from your book, kind of a little tag on, but Josh, I want to volley it over to you. I, I took a few in a row. Well, I guess I have more of a textual question because I'm really interested in this idea of, um, a final will and Testament. So like in, in Galatians three, I'm teaching through Galatians. So I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with it right now in this moment. Um, in Galatians three, uh, he, he talks about the inheritance that we receive as children. And that word inheritance is final will and Testament. It can also be translated that way, but it makes sense to go inheritance. And he talks about, you know, why the law was given because because of disobedience and like, we're growing up into maturity. And now that we've come to maturity, we can like receive this gift by faith. And it kind of walks through, you know, the use of the law, the final will and Testament, and those kinds of things. And, and it's interesting that the context that precedes chapter three is chapter two, where the circumcision party comes and Peter's at table with Gentiles. And I think certainly included in the table, could he have been eating, you know, Gentile meat? You know, you've got, you've got guys like Tom Schreiner say, that's clearly the plain reading of the text, but then you have other scholars who go, maybe not, but at least what is taking place is the table is being shared. And that was something that took place when you gathered in those gathered meals is that you would take communion. When the circumcision party shows up, they're like, hey, this replaces Passover. You need to be circumcised to take this table. Um, so it appears that Peter is recoiling because, yeah, you can have access to the promise, but also you should do these things to have access to the promise, right? So it's interesting that the connection of this is a free gift, not a gift of work, uh, and that this is not a work that we are to do. Communion is not a work, it's a gift. And for those of you who are not familiar with Lutheran theology, um, uh, Lutheran theology turns like evangelicalism as a whole kind of on its head because evangelicalism a lot of the times will we'll, we'll say these cute little idiom, not idioms, cute, cute little sayings like, you know, I didn't come to receive at church. I came to give. I came to give of worship. I came to to pour out myself into the church. But it's like, no, that's actually the exact opposite reason that you come. You come to church to receive the good gifts from God. You come to receive his gospel. You come to receive his salvation. You come to receive his good gifts, his His sacraments. You, you come to receive from God to be nourished so that your faith would be stirred in him. So you're not coming to church to work. You're coming to church to receive the good things that God has worked for um, and that he's poured out on his people. And that term of inheritance, that, that term of 
uh, I, viewing the sacraments, viewing the table as a good gift that God has given to us that we don't have to work for and we don't, we don't have to, the, the act of itself is not a work, but it's a good gift from God. Uh, another great podcast uh, from a Lutheran scholar, 1517 podcast, uh, they were talking about uh, a homeless guy going to uh, a soup kitchen. And I've used this illustration, I've totally stolen it, used it a couple times. Um, but he doesn't work. When, when, he, when he goes to the soup kitchen and gets the bowl, you, you ask him like, hey, you know, was that work? No, that wasn't work. He didn't go out and work a job, have money, go and buy food. He just positioned himself to where he knew the food was going to be, right? Um, and, and when we take the table, we're not working. We're not like uh, the, the sacrament of communion is not this labor that I put into uh, communion. It's actually, I just position myself to receive the work of Christ in the act of communion. So yeah, it's a, a remembrance of what Christ has done, but there's a, there's a supernatural empowerment to that as well. Um, anyway, so that, that, again, that, that's me also monologuing there, Michael, uh, I'd be curious, uh, 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 Kenneth, as we, as we talked about history, okay, here, here's the biblical arguments, history of how communion began to suss out in such a way that it was, it was prevented from, being received by the masses, right? Uh, it appears in the Dadake, hey, this is something that we were doing weekly. It appears in early church history. This is something that we were doing weekly. Something happened uh, by by viewing uh, the sacraments as a, a very holy, very reverent. They, they started looking at God maybe in an unbalanced way of his transcendence and eminence. That he's so lofty, so untouchable, so unattainable. The idea of fellowship with his body and blood became foreign to uh, the community of, of the saints. Like it was, it was hard to think about um, what, I mean, obviously the Protestant Reformation took place, but were there anything leading up to the Protestant Reformation that, that made it possible for us to, again, receive this good gift on a kind of a weekly basis? Um, did, did we return back to what was historic? What did those debates look like there in church history? I think there were, there were efforts. You think of uh, Jan Hus and, uh, others and so forth to uh, to uh, be clear about what the Lord's Supper was. It's not a, 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 a sacrifice for the dead to be paid for, uh, for some special votive uh, need. It is a, a sacrament, a gift for the living, for their strengthening, for their forgiveness. You spoke of uh, uh, the purpose of worship and so forth in, in Luke 7, when the woman comes to Jesus and she uh, anoints him in the Pharisee's house. And she's a sinner. Of course, the text says that. And the Pharisees, they understood the reputation of this woman. And, and there's a concern about Jesus receiving this. And he lauds her for what he's done. She's done for him. And then she said she loves much. And because of the forgiveness that is much, she knew she had a lot to uh, forgiveness to receive. That text is in our, our Lutheran confessions, and it says the chief worship then of God in Christ is uh, this conviction to come to him for the forgiveness of sins. That's the, the chief worship. Do we respond in prayer and praise? Uh, yes. Uh, with gifts? Uh, yes. Uh, but the, the, the heart and center of, of, uh, of that inter, of, of, of coming to Christ, uh, being gathered with Christ, uh, with Christ and his flock is is to receive what he is there to feed us in, in word and in meal. And in terms of the history, uh, the abuses that were put in place, uh, you mentioned the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. Sometimes in fighting the heresies that Jesus was not true God 
and emphasizing his Godhead and, and his, his power, his, um, his glory. Um, the, the humanity of Jesus was underemphasized and the compassion of Jesus. Um, and so that, that I think was a factor in people being fearful of this gift. And um, the, the teaching that the priest by his indelible nature now had the power to re-sacrifice Jesus in an unbloody manner. And um, it, it became uh, it, done in Latin, which many people did not understand. Um, you, your, your little tattoo there, Joshua, uh, this is my body in, in, the, in the Latin, but uh, they, the, the phrase hocus pocus comes from people watching the mass from a distance. And there, there was in those uh, centuries, people communing with their eyes, or so they thought. Uh, shouts would go out, even higher, Sir Priest, so that as he would do the unbloody sacrifice and uh, hold up the, this is the body of Christ, um, that they could see it. They'd put lights in the dark curtain. And, and get paid more if he lifted it up higher, right? Like the longer and the higher you lift up the host. Yeah, which and then, is actually then idolatry to worship the body and the blood, or to worship the uh, uh, the bread and the cup. Which, of course, I guess transubstantiation plays into that. If they if they thought that the bread and wine were essentially uh, disappeared and transubstantiated into that, the former matter was completely gone and now replaced with Jesus Himself. Um, that would play into that idolatry, wouldn't you say? I know well, that I, I know that in your in the Lutheran belief that uh, you do believe that it's it is the literal body and blood, but you also believe that it's the literal bread and wine, different from uh, from transubstantiation. Anyway, I'm just pointing out it, it to me. I would call that idolatry. What, what would you call that? Well, um, uh, the Lutherans are very clear, and and I guess the huge thing with Luther, um, and I'm not into the Church Fathers in great depth, but I know that through the centuries there became this more internalized perspective of God's working, that I know it on the inside. Not so important is that which is on the outside. And Luther, who never wanted to be called Lutheran, uh, or people to be called Lutheran, he said, no, no. He said, God comes to us as he's promised. And so in this gift, he comes from the outside, and we can be sure of it. We can put our confidence in it because God promised it. And in the sacrament, that was it as well. Now, if you're going to put the the host, the consecrated uh, bread, on parade, that's, that's not the sacrament. And so, you know, I was in Spain in the military <laughs> decades ago, and they had, uh, in the little village I stayed in to do radar work for the Air Force, they had a parade with the, the Virgin Robledo. And there was a consecrated host there, and people would bow down to this uh, consecrated host uh, with the Virgin's statue operate. This is idolatry. Yeah, this, this, is not, this is not the sacrament, Luther would say. It, it's intended for this use. And so the words that Christ speaks in the midst of his gathered people, then it is to, uh, the people are to eat and to take and eat, take and drink. Um, the, the fear of what was there, that was part of what uh, backed people away from receiving it. Uh, and then the, the Roman hierarchy's concern about spilling the blood 
So you can only take the host. And at the beginning of the middle, I think we lost your audio there again, Kenneth. I'm sorry about that. I think I like to cover up my microphone with my hand. That might so be it, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a veteran at, at this, uh, this uh, type of interview. But um, with that, three times a year at the beginning of the Middle Ages, by the end of the Middle Ages, by Luther's time, uh, coming to the Reformation, it was once a year under papal requirement to do so or to be uh, excommunicated from the church that every every faithful member was to make a plenary confession of their sins and, and take communion at Easter at least or once a year to remain in the Catholic Church. And it had all become a law. It had become a mis, uh, uh, misused um, sacrifice of the Mass, not the mm -hmm. sacrament of Christ for the living to be received okay. to feed, feed in. So Kenneth, Kenneth, as we're rounding out our hour here, we typically allot an hour for our show, um, I just want to ask you, so the title of your book is The Blessings of Weekly Communion. Uh, this episode is about weekly communion. We've talked about the history and how throughout the history of the church and the early church, it was, uh, I mean, in the apostolic church, it was every week. And then some for the first uh, three to four centuries, it was every week. It started to die off because of weird beliefs about the Eucharist. And the church has always struggled to get back on board with how it's supposed to be practiced ever since. And so we kind of talked through some of the history of it. Um, and, and then you, you've given some reasons uh, here and there, too, for why you believe it should be a weekly practice. But uh, let's just imagine, because we're, we're short on time here, uh, you're on an elevator and somebody says, oh, you have a, a clerical caller. You must know a lot about Jesus in the Bible. So I'm just going to ask you a question. And you've got you have a two minute ride. OK. And they say, why should I practice communion? every single week and uh so you know you uh so you're on this elevator they say why should we why should we take communion every week and you got to give your arguments what are your arguments for why we should practice communion every week i would say person at the, on the elevator <laughs> why should i do the lord's supper every week why should i practice why every week yeah mm -hmm. they'd say it's the wrong question it's the okay wrong question. why should we allow the living Christ, when he comes into the midst of his church and gathers us together in weekly worship, why should we allow him to serve us this most precious gift? The ultimate gift on Monday, Thursday, uh, the gift central to the church, the gift that brings us uh, our Lord in the flesh. Uh, our bridegroom comes with this intimate gift to unite with his bride. So why should we allow him to do it? Because we need it. We need his love. We need his forgiveness. Uh, we need the strength that gives us to love our neighbor and our daily vocation. This is, it's not our doing, it's Christ's doing. And so, um, uh, uh, I don't know, Michael, I guess I would say that would be the first thing. I think you're asking the wrong question. That's good. This is not our doing, it's what Jesus is doing. And so uh, why, should, why should he be allowed? Well, but think of that question, even the way I'm saying it. Why should we allow him to I, I like that. It, it identifies it as it's a question that we ask as, I mean, for you, you and I as, as Americans and naturally pragmatists, 
why should I do this every week? But yeah. uh, but really the question is, why should I gather before the living Christ to receive the benefits that he purchased for me uh, through faith? Uh, well, when you put it like that, I kind of feel like I should I should want to say yes to that. Yeah. <laughs> but but I know you had more. So you re you reframed the question. And now, so what would your reasons be? Um, as a sinful person getting older, I don't see my sin less. I see it more. Uh, Luther warned, warned us about that. Um, hmm. Luther says, Satan is closer than your shirt. Um, and he's so slick. He's so sly. And we have the victory over him in Christ. And Christ is at work for us. He's at work in our baptism. He's at work when we receive forgiveness. When um, our, our spouse says, I forgive you, because we apologize and ask for that forgiveness. Or just admit our wrong. And they say, I forgive you. Whoa, I, I don't think I really need forgiveness. Well, yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. And it's there. We live in it. We live in God's grace and that forgiveness. Um, so the need is constant. Uh, uh, and and uh, people would say, well, I, I don't know. I think I'm doing pretty good in the Christian life. I don't know if I need that much forgiveness and so forth. Uh, Psalm 19 is, is frequent in our confessions, and it's a real help. Who can discern his errors? You know, cleanse me from hidden faults, O Lord, and keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And after that, then it says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the acceptableness of our, our words and our mouth before God come from his forgiveness. And he forgives sins we don't even know, that we're not even aware of it. And uh, so forgiveness is, 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 a, is a, I guess, Michael would be at the heart of that, um, allowing Jesus to do what what Jesus does, and so much more. Unity with one another, communion, we are joined together. And we're, we're to leave the table in his love with strength and to love our neighbor. Um, Amen. That's good. Let me Gosh. let me ask uh, another question that's kind of on the tail ends of that, because, I mean, the question is, hey, why do we do this weekly? And the response is often like, why, you know, like to your point, why not let Christ do this weekly I suppose if I heard that response, my follow-up would be, well, can I take this every day? Can I, can I in my home and with my family take communion? Can I, can I follow the instructions or the, the example of my pastor, my reverend, my priest that, that I see uh, offering up the table? Is that something I can do in my home with my family? Because if this is something that Christ is giving me and empowers me, it forgives you know sin and it, it infuses some kind of grace into my life in some mystical way. If if that's happening, then then I, I should be doing this all the time. I mean, if reading the Bible gives me a measure of grace, if praying gives me a measure of grace, then like, why just once a week? Why not every day? Well, how would your response be to this? Well, there was daily communion in, in the church and in areas at different times. And uh, I first Corinthians, first Corinthians four, where St. Paul speaks of himself and the apostles as stewards of the mysteries of God's grace. And this is a house manager of God's grace. Um, I wasn't called to give the Lord's Supper to my wife as my wife. I was called by Christ to serve a congregation with his gifts. And the 
I mentioned before the you in the Bible that gets us so, into people into so much misunderstanding in terms of even the spirits indwelling. Uh, does this does the spirit uh, come to us personally? Yes, uh, but so many of those texts are umes in the Greek uh, that he he dwells within you, gathered together in 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 the corporate uh, congregation in the flock. Um, Jesus calls us together. He's the one who gathers us, and um, and he gathers us with under shepherds, the apostles appointed pastors and all the places where they were uh, where they were uh, preaching and so forth. And that the, the gift has continued, the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the prayers, that's still uh, what Christ calls his under shepherds to give, but uh, they are to do that. And so um, I don't have a call from Jesus. As a, as, a, as, a, as a father, as a husband in my home, I have a call from Jesus to pray and to teach my children and to love my wife like Christ loved it. I've got enough work to do um, in my vocation as a father, but that's not the same uh, vocation, the same calling as, uh, as, as Christ would give to uh, his pastors in the church. So it, it sounds like you're saying that um, according to first Corinthians four, um, that Paul as a clergy, as a ordained minister, apostle, elder, pastor, you, you'd kind of fill in the blank there and say that's your job to administer the grace of God, the mystery of God's grace, and you would include within that communion. However, the book of Corinthians talks about charisma, right? Like it it refers to grace being given to the church and then the church is to exercise that. Um, So like mercy and and, and, and leadership gifts and and teaching and uh, exhortation and things that seem to be outside of the realm of just the clergy uh, has been given to the church to exercise amongst the congregation. Um, you know, we're we're charismatic, so we would include within that other gifts. But because you're in a, a Missouri Synod church, I'm not going to get you in trouble. And I'll just ask you to stick to those non-revelatory charismata, those grace gifts. Um, how how would you uh, respond to someone who goes, well, that makes sense that you're saying, okay, Paul is a minister of the mystery of God's grace. Um, but it also seems over here that these other people are ministering with God's grace too. Why are we Why are we separating it as if this is only for clergy? I, I'd be curious to to get your feedback on that. Uh, through First Corinthians, there um, I, with Paul and speaking to the the church about the Lord's Supper, um, there's a, a a great deal of doctrinal teaching in First Corinthians. Uh, let us all agree. He says, and, and say the same thing. First uh, Corinthians one, right in the first chapter, um, it's not just let's just agree to agree, but let us all say the same thing—the thing that God has said. And then Paul says, uh, with the Lord's Supper there, that I handed over to you what was delivered to me—that on the night of His betrayal, uh, Christ uh, gave this gift of the Lord's Supper. So there's this this handing over to the apostles. Uh, you know, Luke and Acts used to be one book. Um, it wasn't separate up and called the Acts of the Apostles till centuries later. Um, but Luke and Acts and Acts was depicting um, the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. He continued to minister to them, and he still does. But um, in the scriptures, there's this office, uh, Paul writing to Timothy and to Titus of pastors. There's a spiritual responsibility that goes with this gift of the Lord's Supper. 
and um, uh, you know, not many of you should teach, it says in James. There's a stricter uh, judgment for those who teach. There is this um, uh, office that carries with it, not because of any sufficiency in the clay pot who's in the office, but because this person is supposed to be uh, handing over what God has delivered to his church. And this, the faith once for all delivered, uh, once delivered to the saints. And, and so um, in terms of, of uh, doing the sacrament in a home, uh, you know, that's, there's no picture of that in the scriptures. Yes, house churches, but the apostles were there with their teaching and the apostles pointed pastors in, in the, the cities where they went so there, there wasn't a, a little family getting together and saying, okay, on the Lord's Day, we're not going to gather together with the church. We're just going to stay here and we'll do our own um, word and sacrament service right here in the church. That's not there in the scriptures. And I think um, that would also go with 1 Corinthians 4, that uh, uh, these are stewards of the mysteries of God that uh, that he still calls uh, house managers. And... Um, I don't know if that's sufficient, uh, Joshua. The answer. Yeah, that's, that would be, that's good. That would, yeah. That's good. Well, Kenneth, I think we're about that time of the show where we need to tie things up. We want to thank you so much for joining us. And uh, it's great to have a Lutheran on the show and uh, our other Lutheran friend from the Missouri Synod. Josh, I think uh, Jordan Cooper is from the Missouri Synod, right? No, so he's in, he's in communion with the Missouri Synod, but he's actually AALC. So, okay, um, that's right. That's right. Not, yeah, not okay. the ELCA, but the other, the other small one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, anyway, but Dr. Jordan Cooper's been on the show a number of times. So, we, we enjoy dialoguing with Lutheran, Lutherans and have benefited a lot from Luther's writings. And so, uh, it's great to have you on the show and talking about the subject of communion that is uh, dear to my and Josh's heart. So dear that Josh got a tattoo about communion. So um, anyway, so we're, we're thankful to, to talk through some of the history and the theology and the biblical arguments and so on. And, uh, and, and more than that, I just, I just hope that our, our listeners and viewers will walk away from this saying, I, I want more Jesus and, uh, and I want to experience his sanctifying grace in communion. That just what everything Christ purchased for me, I want to come to the table in faith and believe that Jesus is is giving me those things afresh, and uh, and I have just personally found in my own devotional life that when I come to the table in faith, that Jesus is doing something. And I and I, Kenneth, I love the way you talk about it, that. It's um, the emphasis is on what Jesus does for us in communion, and uh, and to just come to the table to to be fed by Jesus. What a, what a wonderful thing to, to receive from Jesus. And so uh, I hope our viewers will walk away from that and that it'll maybe affect the way you participate in communion in the future. Uh, so Kenneth, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, for our viewers, just one more time, I want to let you know that if you liked this video, push that like button, uh, try hitting that subscribe button too, so you can catch more videos. And uh, Wednesday, we have another episode coming out 
It's going to be a follow-up on the courts of heaven. We're going to look at the exegesis of Robert Henderson in his latest book about receiving mantles from the Lord. Uh, we believe the courts of heaven series is Gnostic in its leanings, and uh, and so we we talk about that. But uh, but we're really going to look into his biblical arguments this coming week. So make sure you hit that subscribe button, and uh, and if you uh, are really blessed by our ministry, we'd just love for you to consider either. Uh, either making a recurring donation on Patreon or a one-time donation on PayPal. And those uh, those links are in the description of this video. Uh, so Kenneth, thanks again for joining us. God bless you guys and have a great week. See you guys next time. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.